Let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have every kind of pleasure and after several nights you would say well that was pretty great but now let's um let's have a surprise let's have a dream which isn't under control well something is going to happen to me that i don't know what it's going to be then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream Finally, you would dream where you are now. of the Parallel Mike podcast. We have titled this episode Money Magic and the Banksters of Babylon. And the title came from a book I was reading by Joseph P. Farrell called The Banksters of Babylon. And I just added the first bit to it because really that's what we're going to be exploring tonight is this idea that ever since the very beginning, going back 5,000 years, there has been an international conspiracy by banking cartels to take over the monetary supply of nations to displace national currencies and replace them with the currency of private banking cartels, which of course is a fiat currency. And really the genesis of this story begins back in Babylon and we have to go all the way back to the Tower of Babel to truly understand how we got to this place we are today. Now, what's really interesting is that the further back you go in history, the more that you see how money was always associated with God or with gods, should I say, plural, because in ancient Babylon, they had a pantheistic belief structure. And the original banks, as we're going to discuss in tonight's episode, were actually the temples. It was the temples where banking arose. And that was because the temples were taking lots of profit and essentially donations, tithes or a form of taxation. And the people would give that to the temples, including the king and queen, of course, although they would get something back later on. But even the king and queen would have to pay certain tithes. And this was because the priestly class were the only ones who could communicate with the gods. So even the king and queen, when they would want some kind of divine inspiration or guidance as to what to do in a matter of statehood, they would have to go to the priest and get the priest to perform some kind of sacrifice or ceremony. And then they would get the message from the gods, which they would deliver to the king or queen. So this gave the priests an awful amount of power, a terrible amount of power, because it enabled them to not just start to store up all of this wealth that they were getting in donations, but also to start to make inroads into actual politics where they could start to manipulate the kings and queens and direct them in certain actions. And of course, once they started lending out the surplus of money that they'd collected out, and became bankers, well, then they started to control commerce as well, and they could manipulate the supply of money. Of course, the only reason they could do that is because they created a fiat system that replaced physical or hard money with receipts. 
And to begin with, these would be receipts for assets that were held at the bank, that were stored there. And as some of these priestly class families started to become more and more corrupt, what they would do is make loans and give out more receipts than they actually had coverage for in the vaults. And that is, of course, where fiat money came from. Now, it's said that the priestly class in ancient Babylon learnt this from communication with one of the darkest entities out there, which is Satan, or what they would have understood as Moloch or Baal. There was many different names throughout history. And that's a really important part of the story too, because that will help us to understand this linking between fiat money and Satan. And then, of course, I spoke about in the previous episode, which if you haven't listened to, I would suggest you listen to that one first. And that's the linking of gold and actual real money to the divine. Now, that's really critical because what the banksters of Babylon essentially did was enact a sort of reverse alchemy. So alchemy is supposed to be about turning lead into gold, base metals into gold. And it's very much linked to the spiritual journey, the spiritual path of an individual, which is turning yourself from a man or woman of lead into a man or woman of gold. And again, I spoke about this a little bit in the last episode. But reverse alchemy is where you take something that is pure, something that is godly even, and you transmute it back to something base, something deformed, something ugly. So that would be taking gold and turning it into something debased, something impure, which of course is fiat money. And that is really the birth of the debt slavery that we see enacted across the world today, where we have entire nations beholden to a tiny group of international elite. Well, all the evidence suggests that this actually began in ancient Babylon. I'm going to speak us through that tonight. I'm going to show you the evidence that exists, that even as far back as 2500, Uh, 2000 BC, we had an international elite that was manipulating world events who were getting kings and queens beholden to them so that they could issue private money and get nations indebted, who were enacting wars and pushing nations to go to war with one another, who were enacting things like human trafficking, essentially seeing the world as a giant chessboard where they could enact their dark arts and manipulate to Ultimately, I guess, is to go towards a one-world hegemon where they could put themselves right at the top of this pyramid. Now, of course, looking from the vantage point we've got today, we can see that we are right at the very pointy end of that agenda. But the story goes back, as I said, 5,000 years. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So in part one, we're going to be looking at the story from a more historic take. We're going to be looking back at the biblical story because that's really where it all begins. It actually begins just after the flood with the building of the Tower of Babel. And this is all historic. This is not a metaphor. This is not some kind of symbolic story. This is actually a true story of what happened. And we know this because we can confirm it by looking at records, historic records of the ancient tablets. And what we find is that just after the flood, we had this thousand year period where man started to fall again. Of course, the flood was supposed to purify the land, uh, make earth, populous again with God-loving human beings who worship the one true God. But of course, we know that didn't happen. And what happened instead was we had this development of this occult mystery school that was really just a continuation from Atlantis. 
And without going too far into it now, this is what the bankers were practicing. And this is what is still practiced today. If you look at things like Freemasonry, for example, they're all based on the ancient mystery traditions. So this is very important to understand also this linking of the occult to fiat money and global control. So that's where we're going to be going today. In part one, we're going to do that historic look. We're going to go to the Bible. We're going to talk about the development of banking. Then in part two, we're going to start to look at the evidence to suggest whether this was a global conspiracy all along, that this is actually an agenda that spans 5,000 years from today all the way back to Babylon. Is that true? Could that be true? Well, I'm going to put the evidence forward and then we're going to talk about where this is going. So a lot to cover tonight, a lot to cover in this episode. I think you're going to take a lot from it. I think it's going to give us all that foundational knowledge so that in the future we can do some more deep dives on specific events relating to this story. Uh, but like I said, I think you're going to find this one extremely fascinating. So without further ado, let's get to part one of Money Magic, the Banksters of Babylon. Members, please go to parallelmike.com to sign in for the full episode in the members section where you can get part one and two. And if you're not a member already and you like what you hear, please head over there and become a member and you can take part in our community and also listen to the full episodes. Here we go, Money Magic and the Banksters of Babylon. <music> Okay, so let's get to it. So in part one, we're going to be starting with the biblical story. And the reason we have to do that is because ancient Babylon is set where the Tower of Babel was. That is where ancient Babylon came from. And the king who ruled back then, Nimrod, you'll know Nimrod as the person who was involved in the Tower of Babel. Well, he is a key player in this story. Uh, so much so that many of the banking bloodlines of today actually trace their bloodline back to Nimrod. That is why they're so precious over their bloodline because Nimrod was the mighty ruler who refused to abide by God's laws. He was the one who revolted against God and even tried to build this massive tower to go up to the heavens and destroy God. And that, of course, is what Satanism is about. It's about destroying God and in his place putting man. So man would rule over planet Earth and over man would rule Satan. And that was what Nimrod was essentially seeking to do. So let's just do a quick summary of events. After the Great Flood, faithful Noah remained in the east and he established his um, community who worshipped what was supposed to be the one true God. And then 80 years after the flood, his rebellious son Ham and his sons together with other family members, well, they departed and they went to settle in a place called Sheena, where they were resolved to start building a new community. And this would be based on the occult mystery schools. And those mystery schools go back to ancient Egypt and Atlantis, and they would worship many different deities and gods and goddesses and make different kinds of sacrifices. Human sacrifice was a key part of that, which we'll come to later on in today's show. And they also had a very, very good knowledge of astrology and astronomy, uh, charting the planets, knowing about the energies of the planets. And of course, that's also linked to power and control because the more that you can understand the energies of the planets and the energies here on Earth and how different celestial events are going to impact that and impact the behaviours of man and woman, well, the more control you can then have. So the kings and queens, of course, had a very vested interest in astrology. And we know that the pyramids of ancient Egypt were all 
astrologically orientated. They were all there to chart the night skies. And of course, we've got other cultures also that did the same thing, like the Druids and Stonehenge. This wasn't just about looking at the night sky and charting the course of things like the procession or knowing when the equinoxes were or looking for things to do with the solstices. It wasn't just about that. It was also about being able to actually draw information from the night sky and ultimately to harness energies relating to different gods and deities or celestial events or powers that could be harnessed and to use that in a very practical way here on earth. And that is why the ancient Greeks, of course, were also so interested in the night sky. This is where all of the psychological archetypes come from, all of the different behaviors and observances about what man does. All of that comes from these ideas and these stories and the astrological realm. So that's why it's so important to understand that. So we had the flood and then God commanded the survivors to repopulate the earth. And we had essentially two different paths that were taken. There was Noah, who was trying to remain faithful to the old God. And then there was his son Ham, his rebellious son, who went off, departed for the plains of Sheena. And then they started to enact this mystery school tradition and to worship other gods and deities and to try and make themselves like God here on earth. So it was about power. It was about dominance. And according to the ancient church father Clement, it was Noah's son Ham who preserved and revived the mystery religion of Atlantis, including its attendant evils from which modern day secret societies are all based. Now, it was Noah's grandson, Cush, who became patriarch of that region. He became patriarch of many different families and he eventually formed a nation there which set the stage for the Babylonian Empire. So it's very important to understand what preceded Babylon. Now, Cush was the father of Nimrod. And you'll know Nimrod because Nimrod was the first mega tyrant in history. And the story of the Tower of Babel is often attributed to Nimrod, although really it was Cush, his father, and Nimrod who were alive at that time. So we don't know who actually instigated the building of the tower, but we know that they were in power in that region. So they certainly would have had oversight over that building. And what they were trying to do was to return to the pre-flood man. They wanted to go back to pre-flood ways and they were angry at God. They wanted to smite God. They actually wanted to kill God and build this tower all the way to the sky so that they could uh, plunge a sword into God and become their own gods. They wanted to become their own gods here on earth. However, they did have to start communing with other powerful entities, which we'll get to later on. So that was the idea. It was uniting against God with one language, one purpose, which sounds very familiar, right? It's this kind of new world order idea of having one global hegemon and all of the people enslaved or under the control of one person. And that's why we know from the Bible that they all spoke the same language. They all lived in the same region, which was going against what God had commanded. He commanded them to spread out across the world. Whereas what they started to do, or at least what the family did, Cush and Nimrod, they started to coalesce in one region. They started to practice this mystery school, these dark arts, these sacrifices, and child sacrifice was a part of that. And then they decided to go all the way to the end, which was to actually become gods. And they wanted to build this tower, climb it up to the heavens, and then smite God and kill God. And that was the that was the goal. And, you know, the height of this tower has been debated by a number of different theologians. They say it was 1.2 miles high, but some say it was high as 
0.6 miles high. So this would have been an absolute gigantic tower. Even today, it would be the tallest tower on earth. And God thwarted the plans. God came down and he saw what they was doing. He saw this rebellion. And that is actually what the name Nimrod means. It means rebellion, rebellious rebellion. And he came down and he saw what they was doing and said, okay, well, I need to put an end to this. And Genesis 11, 5 to 9 has this to say. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. And they all have one language. And this they began to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they had imagined to do. Go to, let us go down. And there confound their language, that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the whole earth. And they left off to build the city. Therefore the name of it was called Babel, because the Lord there did confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So that's the biblical story. You've got this um, Nimrod. He was a great warrior, great leader. He was a tyrant and men started to worship him as though he was a god. And then, of course, he wanted to actually become a god. He wanted to manifest as a god. And he had a wife, too, who was very important to the story. His wife was Semiramis. And they both started to worship Satan or Moloch or Baal. And the reason for that, we don't know. This probably goes back to the mystery schools of Atlantis harnessing dark energy. It's almost like there's two powers out there. There's the light and the dark. That is dualism. Well, Baal or Moloch would represent the dark. And they were trying to harness this to create a tyrannical government and set up a new religion, a one world religion that centered around Nimrod and his wife as the god incarnates here on earth. And from this, we have the pagan religions of the Middle East and Europe that later developed. They really all went back to ancient Babylon. And whilst not a lot more is written about Nimrod and his wife in the Bible, we do know from many different passages that the people there were practicing child sacrifice. They were actually giving up their firstborn son or their daughter to be sacrificed to Moloch, to Satan. And that is what they were all doing. And that's where it came from. It came from these mystery school adherents in ancient Babylon, like Nimrod and his wife. Now, of course, it will not be lost on the listener that the word Babel and the word Babylon are very, very similar. And of course, that is because these great nation states that were built by people like Nimrod and his wife, that was the birthplace of ancient Babylon. That is essentially where it arose out of. So Babel, Babylon, they are one and the same. This was just a very early part of that history. And the nation states that he managed to build along with his wife and their descendants, that is where Babylon arose out of. So from the very beginning, the very beginning, there was this occult origin, this mystery school that was a part of the early part of Babylon. There was this desire to build this kind of one world government. So there was all of this taking place long before ancient Babylon existed. Now, the story from there can get quite murky. Making the link between the Tower of Babel and Babylon, there's a lot of history that is simply too hard to trace. There's no records. So we have to kind of fill in the blanks ourselves. Now, what we do know is that around 2500 AD, there was a sophisticated system of banking that had begun to arise in ancient Babylon. And there was a culture there. There was kings and queens And this was essentially the start of the next chapter of this story, which we're going to be looking at now. So to help us do that, I'm going to be reading out some quotes along the way just to give us some context. And the first one is this. 
Modern banking traces its origins to Babylonian temples in the early 2nd millennium BC. Ancient Mesopotamian temples had a redistributed economic function. The temple was organised as a redistributive system dealing with incoming rents and gifts and outgoing rations and wages. Income was derived from investments, land donated by kings and also from occasional dedications of the spoils of war, precious objects and prisoners of war. Eventually, all form of payment were assessed by an expert assayer in terms of equivalent ingots. The most Arabic word, which I cannot actually pronounce, it's J-I-H-B-I-D-H, has been traced back to Suniform records and means both financier and assayer. The silver received was placed in a wickerwork cash box, and the smiths received a special beer allowance for the hot work of melting it down. This system was still used later by Solomon. As it happens, most records refer to the temples, although there is evidence that a similar system was used by the palace. The temple also received payments intended for the king. So what we're getting at here is that in the temples, there was this rudimentary form of banking that was taking place. And it arose because the temples were receiving a surplus of income because they were receiving these taxes or tithes and gifts. Sometimes it was the spoils of war, so people would bring back precious items that they plundered. Sometimes it was donations for the king that passed through the church and the church would retain it. So they started to amass substantial amounts of wealth. And of course, what are you going to do with that wealth? You've got this big stockpile. Well, then the idea came to start loaning it out. And that was really the birth of modern banking. It began in ancient Babylon and they developed all kinds of sophisticated ways of accounting and loaning out money and keeping ledgers. And some of this is still available to us today by looking at the clay tablets, although of course a lot of it has been lost over time. Some of the earliest records show a distinction between exchangeable and non-exchangeable goods. Exchangeable goods could be transferred without formality and included gold, silver, other metals, commodities such as oil, yeast, beer, wool, leather, papyrus and weapons. Thus, the idea of a standard currency of exchange, if not a single monetary currency, was established. Indeed, exchange rates for exchangeable goods were posted for both current and future times. Now, this is really fascinating because it shows that even as early as 2500 BC, a sophisticated system of finance was already developing. They had currency exchanges, they had a market for that where they would have all different commodities priced in different levels of metals, so between gold and silver or other metals. Similarly, they didn't just have current prices, they also had futures prices, which tells us that they actually had a futures market. So 5,000 years ago, there was actually a futures market that was trading in things like commodities and metals, and this was all happening in and around Babylon. And the other thing, of course, it starts to suggest is that there was a single monetary unit of account that was developing, and that was around the precious metals. Now, you have to consider that after hundreds, if not thousands of years of having these temples where people were going to worship the gods and they were paying tithes and the churches were also getting donations, of course, from the king because the king or queen would have to go to the priestly class also to find out what the gods were thought was best, what was the best thing to do in a really important situation. So after thousands of years of this, the priests who ran these temples were literally sitting on giant piles of money. And of course, that is why they started to enact this banking trade. It wasn't just a temple of worship. It was also a place of commerce and exchange and banking. 
So around the time of Hammurabi, we spoke about the Hammurabi code, which most people will know as some of the earliest forms of human text or writing. It's clay tablets and it's written in Suniform. And they came around the 18th century BC. And we know that around this time, the banking activities really began to ramp up in ancient Babylon. And there's evidence in the code of Hammurabi Uh, that itself was based on much older codes. So we know that just because that's the first evidence we've got in terms of the clay tablets, this was actually going on far, far longer. We're probably talking hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we know that in ancient Egypt, they also had a system of banking too. Now, I'm not going to get into that one today because it's too deep of a rabbit hole to go go down. So we're going to stick with ancient Babylon. But we do know, like I said, that there was older codes that the code of Hammurabi was based upon. And in that code, it lists all kinds of things to do with contracts, the payment of interest on loans, uh, and essentially laying out the laws of finance. Now, as I said, there was also a merchant class that had risen up at this time, and they were monopolizing the metals to store and transfer wealth. So they were actually now starting to enact some of the darker arts of banking, and they were making loans with interest. And banking families and banking clans started to arise. And of course, they would have a vested interest in retaining their power and increasing it. So we know that there was a practice that was taking place around this time, not just between the banking elites, but also between kings and queens who wanted to consolidate their power too. And that was marrying into family. So they'd marry their first or second cousin, for example. And this was happening in the banking clans too. So we had these power bases starting to arise. And by the Code of Hammurabi, it's safe to say that there was already a well-established system and already a well-established group of people or bankers or priestly class that were in charge of it. In financial and monetary transactions, the position of the Babylonian temple was not unlike that of national banks today. They carried out their business with all the added weight of official authority. Of all these religious financial organisations, the outstanding one was that of Samas, the sun god and lord of justice and righteousness, at Sippar, the so-called eternal city of Babylonia. No Mesopotamian fame had such a reputation and longevity in the banking sphere as did the sun god's shrine. It is believed that this temple was the first bank of the world. So this is really interesting. We're starting to see that linking up of banking with the spiritual realm. And also that the most important temple here was the sun god, the sun god's shrine, Samas. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. It comes from another word, which is Shamas. And the sun god was also known in ancient Babylon as Utu. And the Arcadian name derives from Samsu, which means sun, and Samsatu, which means solar disk. Now, we spoke a lot in episode two about how the sun was always representative of a loving God. And of course, Jesus Christ himself became represented by the sun. And there's many, many different passages in the Bible that link Jesus Christ to the sun. So we have many different clay tablets from this period, and they're very illuminating as to how the banking practices were developed in Hammurabi. Like I already said, there was these kind of promissory notes that existed and they were referring to the future value of commodities and also the exchange rates that would be acceptable. So for instance, there was one that said to be paid according to the rate of exchange in the month of X. And that would say that there was a future loan that had to be repaid and it had to be repaid at a certain value and exchange rate. And there was another one, for example, that would say If he does not pay the silver of the loan, 
he will give barley instead. So this is again showing that there was collateralization going on. That If somebody couldn't pay back their loan in silver, then they would have something of value taken off them. And of course, as an agricultural culture, where lots of people were dealing in grains and barley, people were having subsistence farms, well, they would have that taken off them. So there was this kind of cutthroat element to it also. And you know, there's a massive number of these old Babylonian records, and they show us all of these temple loans that were happening. And we know that the temple was the bank because the temple appears as the creditor on the loans. Now, a historian called Harris, he stated that the very fact that so many temples are found in the role as creditor is reason enough to assume that the temples must have had the resources to act as banks. And like I said, we've already seen evidence of that. Now, what's interesting is that on some of these tablets, gods and goddesses actually appear as the creditors, especially Samas, which is the sun god I just mentioned. Uh, and that's also the god of justice and righteousness. And it was his temple that became known as the world's first bank, the world's first bank. Now, why is that? Well, because Babylon had its tentacles going out really fast. We're going to find out later on in tonight's episode. And there's lots of evidence that the banking elite of Babylon were actually controlling international finance. It wasn't just located to that one region. They actually were pulling the strings in many nations, even as far as the Orient, which is astounding. The whole notion of the institution of precious metals by weight as common denominator of exchanges internationally and nationally had to have been disseminated by a conspiratorial organisation. Fully aware of the extent of the power to which it would accede, could it but maintain control over bullion supplies and the mining which brought them into being in the first place. Clearly such a notion had originally come into being during the historically distant period when first of all free silver began to be exclusively used as a convenient and highly portable commodity in settlement of balances outstanding in foreign trade, certainly as far back as Neolithic times. This fact was indicated by the evidence existing that values and by inference money were already expressed in terms of silver by weight at the time of Azagbao dynasty at Kish in Mesopotamia, 3268 to 2897 BC. Well, so this is really fascinating. What we're finding out here is that even as far back as 3500 BC, if you go back to ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia, what you find is that they understood there was an international exchange rate and it was based around silver. And therefore, that could be manipulated because just like today with fiat money, if you can increase or decrease the monetary supply, then you can put people into states of crisis and financial hardship. And then, of course, you can pick up assets for pennies. And that's what's happened throughout history. When they got a fiat monetary system in place, they could call in debts like what happened just prior to the panic of 1893. And the reason I mention that is because it's actually on congressional record that the banksters back then who were in control of the monetary system, they said, on September the 1st, 1894, we will not renew our loans under any consideration. On September the 1st, we will demand our money. We will foreclose and become mortgagees in possession. We can take two-thirds of the farms west of the Mississippi and thousands of them east of the Mississippi as well at our own price. Then the farmers will become tenants of England." 
and that was an 1891 memo to members of the American Bankers Association. So this was the banksters who, of course, run the Bank of England. And we spoke a little bit about that in the first episode of this series with Ian from White Lotus of Light because the Venetian bankers that sprang out of Greece, then went to Rome, then went to Venice, then they set up the central banks in Holland. There was the First Bank of Amsterdam and then there was the Bank of England after that. Well, all of this goes back, like I said, to ancient Babylon. And in ancient Babylon, they too understood that if they could control the mining of silver which they did through slavery, they had lots of slaves working in in those mines and they worked them to death. Then they could hoard the silver, they could lend it out, but of course they would lend it out in terms of notes, promissory notes saying that a person had this on account with the bank and they would make contracts, but then they could also not renew loans. Now remember, a lot of the people there were farmers, so they would have had loans each season to bring wealth into the future whilst they were waiting for their crops to be harvested. Now, of course, if you get people dependent on that system, then you can just simply say, like the banksters did in 1891, that we're not going to renew the loans, and that causes a massive crash. Now, when the banks did that, they actually made their move early. They caused the panic of 1893. Uh, By raising the interest rates and the restriction of credit, And millions of loans were called in, and America went into receivership. Uh, And so hard hit was the middle class that it was a common sight to see newly built houses simply walked away from by their owners, which they could not obtain a mortgage refinancing. The image of the abandoned Victorian haunted house was so prevalent that it became part of the American psyche. The runs on the bank through 1894 were so horrific that it was still on the American mind and became the central topic of the 1896 presidential election. So like I said, this same practice goes all the way back to ancient Babylon where they were controlling the money supply and they were controlling people through debt slavery. Now, of course, what I'm not trying to do here is suggest that there is one simple and straight line continuum all the way from ancient Babylon to where we are today. Although what you'll find out later on in the show, particularly in part two, when we start to look at more of the occult side of this, is that some of the banking bloodlines that exist today actually do trace themselves all the way back to these ancient Babylonian families, and particularly the bloodline of Nimrod, that one's key. And a lot of the mystery schools today, when you look into their workings, or you try to, of course, there's a lot of secrecy around it, they are still enacting the same kinds of processes and belief systems. Uh, They're still using astrology. Uh, That's a really important part of it for them. Similarly, they have this and worship of this dark entity, this Molochian entity, this Baal or Satan. And we see that all around us right now, you know, which shows you that they're coming into power, that they're almost at the peak of their power. They've managed to get a grip of most nations here on planet Earth. Most people are living in this fantasy world that is an alchemical creation. So it's almost like we're living under a spell. And you see that, you really see that everywhere. So whilst I'm not suggesting that there's one continuum, we know that throughout history there has been many attempts to get rid of the banksters. Some nations managed to achieve it for a certain amount of time, but they always managed using their dark arts, their manipulation, their occultism to get themselves back in. You know, and it makes me think of James Garfield, for example. He was the president of the USA uh, back in the 1880s, and he said, Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. 
Of course, President Garfield, who had a long track record of being completely opposed to fiat currencies, which was in opposition to the banksters around him who was trying to set up the central bank, which they succeeded in 1917 with the Federal Reserve. Not for the first time, of course, there was previous incarnations of central banking in America, and then you'd get presidents like Garfield come in and kick them out. And then they'd managed to get the way back in. Well, President Garfield, he was shot. He was killed by an assassin on July the 2nd, 1881. And that was less than 200 days into his presidency. And of course, he was somebody who was opposed to decentralization of banking and fiat money. So this is how it played out throughout history. There was always this toing and throwing. But really, the modern era, I would say, began with the Federal Reserve uh, although you can take it back to the Bank of England, you can take it back to Venice, and then from there you can go back to Rome, Greece, and then all the way to Babylon if you want to, because the links are all there. And what Garfield was essentially describing there was what we saw in ancient Babylon too. They controlled the money supply, they controlled silver, which we're going to look into now. Okay, so moving on and relevant to that last point, I've got a quote here, and this one's from the Banksters of Babylon. It is not until the Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian and Persian eras that clear evidence can be traced of the total degeneration of kingly power and of kings and so-called emperors as quite often being little more than glorious, bemedaled frontmen for private money creative power striving to create worldwide hegemony. They still continue to be needed principally as a point towards which the eyes of the people might be diverted in order that the people might not realise that all was not well in that direction towards which their loyalties naturally leaned, nor glimpse the destructive forces that were gnawing at the roots of the tree of life itself. Wow, it doesn't get any more clearer than that, and I think that aptly describes where we are today as well. And what this quote does is it traces back what we see today all the way back to Babylon, that even as far back as 1000 BC, 500 BC, around that area of Neo-Babylonia, which was the second Babylonian empire, that there was this international banking cartel that were essentially using monarchs just as puppets and stooges. At that point, the monarch had very little power when it came to the international banking cartels to these families. They would be put on stage, they would be put out there, and the people needed that. They needed to believe in it. They needed to believe in the system because if they didn't, if they understood that what was happening to them, if they understood the source of their financial hardship, of the monetary inflations and the crashes, then there would be a revolution. There'd be a revolution in the morning, as they say. Well, that's exactly what we've got today. You know, we've got an entire system of power that is nothing but an illusion. This political system... President Joe Biden, the politicians over in the UK, they're all working for the banking cartel, for the banking elite. We know that there's a corporatocracy that exists globally. They run the show. They run the show. And at the very peak, there's just a few families that are in charge of that whole system. You know, nobody truly believes when they see these politicians, when they see Joe Biden up there stumbling to get through just a simple sentence. Nobody believes that he holds any true power. You know, he holds the level of, let's say, a middle manager at best. The same with people like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. People say, oh, my God, they're so powerful. They're the richest man in the world. They're enacting the Great Reset. Klaus Schwab. No, no, no. None of those people have any real power. They have power amongst the little people. You know, they're the top of the tree in terms of the little people. But at best, these people are just middle managers. They get to play rich. They get to live that life for enacting their part 
of the story for playing the role that they've been assigned to play. And if they refuse to play that role, if they said tomorrow, I'm not going to play it anymore, I don't want to, I'm going to go retire with my billions and billions of dollars or whatever it is, well, I don't think they'd be around much longer. They'd get fired. And when you get fired in that world, it's not the same as getting fired in our world. So those people are completely beholden to this system. They all have a role to play. And you see that in politics. You know, there is no politician out there that would dare ever speak or utter a word about the Fiat Ponzi system. Nobody would ever mention that because, of course, that is a non-negotiable. You cannot discuss it. No politician would ever bring to light the fact that we have a Fiat Ponzi scheme. In fact, the only politician that has done that is Ron Paul in the US. He did that. He mentioned it. But, you know, that was a long time ago. And I don't think he'd be in that position to do it today. I think he's just a remnant of a generation that was a little bit more flexible. And of course, he never got into presidency. And if he did, well, he could have wound up like JFK, could have wound up like James Garfield, like Abraham Lincoln who himself said, I have two great enemies, the Southern Army in front of me and the bankers in the rear. And of the two, the one at my rear is my greatest foe. So again, another enemy of the banking cartels and they got rid of him. You know, he was dealt with, same as James Garfield. So I think we're going to leave that there for part one. In part two, we're going to be talking more about the occult side of this and we're going to trace that back to the very beginning and hopefully provide the listener with some insight as to why we have this darkness now and what some of it means, how these agendas that we're actually seeing take place here today, such as, for example, the transgender agenda, how that actually fits into this worship too. So I hope you enjoyed part one of Money Magic, the Banksters of Babylon. Like I said, if you'd like to listen to part two, please head over to parallelmic.com where you can become a member and you can check out what's going on over there. Have a fantastic week. Thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast by becoming a member already. And another way that you can support it if you would like to is to simply give it a good review on iTunes and of course to share it with other people as well. All of that really helps support me and my work over here. So again, thank you so much. Have a fantastic week and I will see you in the next one. Awaken from this illusion, and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death. You can feel yourself, not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself.